This show is made possible by you, our listeners. If you like what you hear, and if you want to help us tell more stories and reach more people, then from only two US dollars a month, you can become a patron of the show. Just visit patreon.com forward slash Aruka Network. Hello, I'm Jake Lloyd and welcome to How to Build Community, a podcast and a radio show brought to you by Tearfund's Footsteps magazine and Aruka Network. In this episode, you're going to hear a story from Sao Paulo in Brazil, a story so remarkable that at the time of recording this, it's being made into a movie. It's about a lady who started a drama project in the Brazilian prison in which she worked. A project in which youth offenders reenact the crimes that put them in prison in the first place. But crucially, they don't play themselves. They have to go into the role of, of their victim or their victim's family or the police officer who arrested them. And the penny drops inside them and they, they just like, they say, I just realise now what, you know, what I'm doing. I'm doing something so wrong. I want to change. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. That's the voice of Callie Magalyes, who is a theatre practitioner and director of The Eagle Project, and who's written about her work in a book called Dancing with Thieves, on which the movie will be based. Now, this psychodrama project, as it's called, is seeing rates of reoffending amongst these boys and young men reduce by as much as 80%. And in this episode, she tells me the full story. So keep listening and you'll hear Callie explain what psychodrama is. She'll tell me how she's been using it with young offenders who are often guilty of violent crimes. You'll learn how drama and the arts can help people develop empathy. You'll learn the crucial difference between restorative justice and punitive justice and Callie will share with you some advice if you'd like to learn more about how psychodrama might be used in your community but I began by asking Callie what is psychodrama and how did she get involved in it I was already working in the youth prisons in Sao Paulo and we were doing individual counseling with the boys and to an extent, it was it was working. It was going okay, but I think out of desperation, the staff in the youth prison began to give us boys that had really, really serious problems, psychopaths, and that kind of thing. And as we're a small project, we just didn't have the the funding. We didn't have the the way to be able to help them properly with with psychiatrists and everything. And so often the boys would be released and as most of them were street kids, we we didn't have our own rehab or anything like that. So we would take them to, to rehabs and they would just um, stay for a couple of days and then, then jump over the wall and, and run away. And I, I just began to get really frustrated and I, I just so wanted something radical for the for the boys something that would help them while they were in the youth prison to prepare themselves for their for their release and going back into the big wide world and so I began to pray and I, I said Lord I just I just want something that that will really really help them and I I so wanted to use drama because um, I'm a professional actress and drama teacher and I just really felt that drama would be a way of of helping them 
And uh, a friend from Milton Keynes who worked in the Milton Keynes prison, she sent me a book about the Geese Theatre Company, who are a company in Birmingham, and they work with um, prisoners uh, doing psychodrama workshops and, and plays. And uh, so I read this book and it was a eureka moment, you know, and I just mm. thought, oh, this is fantastic because psychodrama, basically what we do is so we work with groups and we begin our, our sessions with them, just helping them to gel as a group, getting to know them, getting to know their, their feelings, their stories, that kind of thing. And then we put them into scenes. So we put them into improvisations. It's all made up on the spot. But they have to go into the role of, of their victim or their victim's family or the police officer who arrested them or, or their mum or their kids. You know, some of them are 16, 17-year-olds, but they've, they've already got one or two kids. And it literally is transformational. I, I joke that it's like a, a rewiring of their brain, but they they literally when they're lying on the ground in the prison on the floor and they they're in the role of the victim who's just been shot you know in a in a in a mugging or whatever it's like it's like something the penny drops inside them and they they just like they say i just realize now what you know what i'm doing i'm doing something so wrong i want to change <laughs> it's absolutely amazing so tell us how you got it started in the prison then so we were already working as a team in the prison doing the individual counselling. And so when I um, discovered the psychodrama, I at the same time discovered restorative justice, which is a completely different way of looking at justice instead of punishing and um, excluding the person, locking them up and throwing away the key. It's a way of helping them to be restored, helping their victim also. So I, I decided to put these two methods together and wrote a new project called Breaking the Chains and presented it to the youth prison where we were working and um, said, could we do a pilot project? Can we try it, you know, with a group? And so we started um, uh, at that time, um, they said to me, do you want to work with the first time offenders or do you want to work with the serious and extremely serious re-offenders and I said I want to work with the serious and extremely serious re-offenders because because they're the ones that really need the help because if they don't change now they're either going to go from the youth prison straight into the adult prison or they're going to be murdered you know and so there's a real need um, there and so we began the pilot project and we're now on our 26th group and um, our results are, are really, really amazing because in general, the boys, they stay in prison for a year, year and a half, two years, up to three years. And, and then they come out and then usually within the first or second month, they reoffend and are back in again. And um, our project, we're, we're around about 70 to 80 percent not reoffending um, if they do at least 10 sessions of psychodrama. The ones that do two, three, four sessions, sometimes they're, they're released, you know, too early. Like we ask for boys that are not released, not going to be released for at least three or four months so that we can get a good 10, 12 sessions with them. The boys that are released after doing two, three, four sessions 
um, sadly, either they, they're murdered or, or go to prison. So we, we see a real, a real difference in those that take part in the project. And the other thing that we do, which is quite unusual here, is that we, we accompany the boy and his family afterwards. So we help them to do courses. We help them to get into to work. We help them with, with food parcels, with documents, whatever they need in order to not re-offend we'll help them if it means buying them a pair of trainers so that they can go for an interview instead of going in their flip-flops then we'll buy them a pair of trainers we won't buy them a pair of nike air you know we'll buy them just a, a decent pair of trainers so that they can get to that interview um have some dignity and and get the job and so we'll offer them support in whatever way we possibly can if they want to be helped then then we say to them the first session we do with them we say to them this isn't a course this is the beginning of a friendship and we want to walk with you we want to help you in whatever way we possibly can we're not going to do it for you but if you need help and you want to change and you want to leave your life of crime behind and and start a, a different future then then we're with you and they look at us and they say no one's ever said that to me in my life. Mm. You know, they, they're they so um, abandoned in so many ways by society, by their family. And, you know, they're just, um, most of them are, are are black, are poor. They live on the outskirts of the city. Their, their mum's a, a, an alcoholic. They don't have a father. Um, there's just drug trafficking all around them. and And they say to us, you know, I, I have two choices. I can work in the car wash and I'm going to earn a, the equivalent of like 80, 90 pounds a month, six days a week, working really, really hard to wash cars for six days a week and I'll earn that much money. Or I can work in drug trafficking and I'll earn that in one night, you know. And mm. so our, our project really helps them to um, dream of, of, a, of a different future to if they want to be a, a dentist if they want to be a barber if they want to be a, a vet if they want to be um an engineer or anything you know we just say to them you, you know you you've got to dream big dreams because um this isn't the plan that god has for you you know there's there's a much better plan for your life than just this circle of crime and violence and prison Talk me through a typical session then. You talked just then about what you say to them at the beginning. What it does a typical session then look like? Okay, so they all come into the to the room. We sit in a circle and we begin with um, passing a, an object around the circle and each one shares how they're feeling as they arrive at the session. So they have a tendency just to just say, I'm fine, I'm at peace, you know, <laughs> I'm hot, you know, mm. like they but we encourage them to to try and explain how they're they're feeling. Um the reason we do that is because the prison is often not a very easy place to be. There's often difficult situations, um Maybe one of them has, has lost a relative, and one of the worst things is obviously is if you're in prison and somebody dies and you can't go to the funeral, and 
here in Brazil, people are buried very quickly. They're buried the same day or the next day. So, you know, often the, the boy's relative dies and, and he doesn't even get a chance to say his goodbyes and all that stuff. Mm. Um, so they'll come into the session and sometimes they're very pent up. You can see that things aren't good. And, and if we arrive saying, oh, hello, everybody, we're going to do a session on anger today. And, you know, <laughs> we need to know where they're at. And so it's really good. And it's also an opportunity for them to know how we're feeling as well as a team, because, you know, sometimes I'll say, oh, I'm having a difficult situation at home with my sons or my colleague, whoever I'm working with, has an opportunity. And they, they see that, you know, we we have real lives, too, you know, and that it's not all easy outside the prison and difficult inside, you know. And so we do that. Then we usually do... Um, a game, well, I mean, I'm always just overwhelmed by how the boys take part. They're like 17, 18, 19-year-olds, hardened criminals, and they'll play bunnies and zip-zap and duck and goose. And, you know, it's just like you, we, we get away with these kind of games. They're just so lovely. They take part with such enthusiasm. And so we do this, do that as a game, just sort of get them you know, moving around or waking up a bit. And then depending on what's happened in the first circle, so if something comes out of that circle that we realise needs to be looked at during the session, let's say something's happened and they're, they're very frustrated. And as a psychodrama therapist, you have to be very spontaneous. And so you just like, you drop whatever idea you did come to the session with and you go with a, um, an activity about frustration or, or put them into scenes about frustration or whatever so the, the, the session will change. But we, we've written a manual and we have like um, basically 10 sessions up our sleeve. So I'll give you an example. Um, one of the sessions that we do is about their victims and it's not a session that we do at the beginning. We, we usually leave it for sort of one of the last sessions when they're really quite sort of warmed up and um, able to to really delve deep into their, their situations. And so we'll talk to them about victims and we'll say, who are, who are the victims in society? And all that kind of thing. We'll do a brainstorm or whatever. Then we'll talk about when we were in a situation, when we were a victim, when we felt victimized. And then... I encourage them, um, whoever is leading the session encourages them to bring a victim to the circle. So um, I always say, try and bring one of your actual victims of someone that you've, you know, held up at gunpoint or whatever. Try not to make it your cousin that you, you know, nicked his kite when you were five or whatever, because <laughs> it won't be as effective, you know. So I have my notebook with me and they don't notice, but what I do is so... Um, let's say there's a boy called Bruno and so he starts and he says okay so I, I it was night time and I saw a lady coming out of a car park and I put a gun against her head and I stole her handbag and she she panicked and I hit her whatever you know so he'll say this whatever happened mm. so I'll write Bruno in my notebook and then I'll say to him okay do you do you know the name of the victim? He says, no. So I say, okay, give this lady a name. So he says, uh, okay, Maria. So I write down Maria next to Bruno. And um, I say, what, what age? So he says, oh, I think she was about 55. Okay, fine. So then I go on to the next person. And so each person 
brings a victim. And then suddenly, without them realizing, I say, okay, good morning, everybody. My name is Vanessa, and I'd like to welcome you today to this self-help group for victims. And I know it's really, really difficult for you to come today and and share your stories, the, the trauma that you've been through. But I just want to really thank you. And I want to explain that, you know, why I started this group. And uh, it was because I, I had a very, very difficult situation in my life. Uh, my 15-year-old son was involved in a in a mugging. He was he was held up at gunpoint and and, and they shot him. And so, um, so after after his death, I I just I was I was so angry. I struggled so hard and was just I just didn't know what to do. And I ended up going along to a group like this for for victims, and and it just helped me so much. And so I, I decided to to start a group um, as part of the organisation that that I went to, and uh, and this is my colleague, and um, her name is Deborah. And she'd like to share her story. And so Deborah shares her story. Mm. And so she obviously, you know, has something happened to her husband or whatever. And then I turn to Bruno, who is the first on my list. And I say to him, so, uh, Maria, I'd like to say thank you for coming today. And, and could you could you share with us um, why you're here? And so he, in the role of his victim, mm. shares all that happened that night when she was held up at gunpoint and her handbag was stolen and the things she lost and now she has panic attacks and he has to say all that in the role of of his victim and we all all around the circle each one doing that and it's absolutely amazing because they they really do it you know you'd think that they wouldn't wouldn't get involved but they really really take part and then at the end every time we do anything like that so if we do scenes or whatever we always have a time of sharing at the end which is where they have an opportunity to either share how they felt in the role of whoever they played or if it was a scene where they were in the audience they were able to watch and and take in something and and be moved by what they saw and this this session is absolutely transformational it's like afterwards they say i never ever realized the consequences you know i've never thought about my victims in this way and so it's really powerful that that's like a typical sort of thing that might happen in one of the in one of the the sessions Mm. so Prior to this interview, I read a chapter from your book um, and you gave another case study, this guy, Alexander, who um, had been involved in stealing motorbikes. And there's a quote in your book where he said, that day when I did the scene of me on the motorbike, but as the owner, not the rubber, I couldn't sleep that night. I realized I needed to change or I'd be in prison the rest of my life or dead. It is... This, this this ten session course that you have, do you feel like it does everything really build up to this this moment of drama where they, where they're they're playing these different roles, or is it is it all the other steps just as important as each other? Yeah, because um, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, Alexandra, he he had this insight while he was sitting on the motorbike in the scene when he was the victim and the, the guys were pointing their guns at his head 
he had his moment of insight where he he realized what he was doing and that he needed to stop but I remember one time we did a, a scene where um, two boys held up a, a motorist and ended up shooting him. And one of the boys was sitting in the audience and and he, he said to me, Callie, can I swap in? Can I swap in? And I said, yeah, swap in. And he went into the role of the, the guy that had just shot the, the motorist. And then he turned around and he said to me, you swapped me in too late. It's too late now. He's dead. You swapped me in too late. <laughs> you know, and it, so it's like, he had the insight sitting there in the in the audience, you know. Um, and I remember um, one of the boys that's mentioned in the book, um, who he's now um, qualified as a radiologist and was in prison for from fourteen to eighteen years and of age. And um, he had his moment of insight when. One a person in the in the circle who um, was one of the members of staff actually we we tried for, for for years not to have any members of staff in the session with us because the boys wouldn't be as open as they we would like them to be able to share you know really really the, all their grunge and so obviously if they've got a member of staff they feel more more restricted but um, it was something that came from the administration from the top that we had to have someone in the session so she was in the session that day and um she shared about how when some burglars um broke into her house and stole the video game and and she said she shared about how her sons were just absolutely devastated you know they came home and someone had stolen their video game and Wallace he turned to me and he said oh that's what I used to do you know and it was like that was just hearing her story was enough for him to want to change, you know. So each person has their own <laughs> own moment of, of insight or not, you know. Some of them come out of the prison and, and continue in crime. And we have a really sad story of a boy who, who was absolutely lovely, take, took part so well, came out of the prison, was working in a, in a car park and had a lovely girlfriend and it was just everything was going fine and um we'd agreed as a project to pay his driving lessons because you can't work in a car park unless you've got a driving license and so he was working you know kind of illegally and so you know he, he was really excited that he was going to learn to drive and then he got this phone call from a criminal who invited him to go with them on the on the crime and um he ended up being murdered by by the police and um the saddest saddest thing was giving you know the money that was meant to be for his driving lessons to his mum to mm. pay for the coffin you know mm. that's just a absolute reality of our of our work you know uh, I, I i say to the boys you know that when we're when we're doing our project development and you know we're trying to get funding or whatever we have to say how many out of 10 are, are not going to reoffend and you know um the, the youth prison director said to me, if you can get three out of 10 to not reoffend, I'll, I'll be ecstatic. And I'm like, I say to them, three out of 10, that means that means you three are going to be okay. You seven are going to die or go to prison. And I say to them, I don't accept that. No, no, you're precious. You're, you're, you've got so much potential. You're wonderful people. You've, yeah, you've, you've been in crime and and that's in your past, but it can be in your past. You know, you don't have to continue doing these things the rest of your life. You know, yeah. So <laughs> I have a I have a picture as you talk. I have a picture in mind that 
you almost describe a, a road to Damascus moment of this re- this realization, a moment of insight. You call it where people, uh, I don't know, they're seeing the consequence of their actions and they're. they're, mm-hmm. they're why why do you i hope this isn't too broad or naive a question or something but why do you think they've not had this moment sooner i think it's because they come from situations where it's just so normal you know the last session we had with the boys where we did the the victims where they brought the victims two of them um, are, are in prison for homicide. You know, they they've killed, and at the age of sixteen, they've they've killed. And um, when when you talk to them about it, it's it's like um, it's almost normal. You know, um, if the victim reacts, um, if the victim gets a gun out, you know, they they shoot them. You know, and it, it's like they've just been brought up in such poverty in such a you know a community of of um this kind of behavior it's almost normal for them and and they have this mentality as i say you know of either it's the car wash or or drug trafficking they don't they don't have any stimulation to dream big dreams and that's what we really try and help them do because they they've come from a a background where nobody in their family has ever been to university. Nobody in their family has ever done anything except work in crime. And and so uh, I think that's part of the reason. The other reason is, is that when they do the, the mugging or the burglary or the shooting or whatever, they don't hang around to look at the victim to see if they've died or to see if they're okay. They run because they know they're going to be either put in prison or murdered. So I, I think the the psychodrama is, um, like I say, it's a, a rewiring of their brain. It's almost like the wires in their brain have been detached. It's like that thing of like, oh, I, I'm not going to even go down that route of wondering whether my victim died or wondering whether my victim's okay or whether, you know, it's like it's survival mode. And then the psychodrama brings it home, you know, it really, really does. And Alexander, who is the, the, the hairdresser now, he, he goes with us to the youth prison and he does talks and he um, does like hairdressing workshops to show the boys what he does. And I mean, he, he went the week before last and we've now got a really big problem because all the boys in the prison want to take part in our project. Mm. And um, they'll admit they don't want to do anything. They don't want to do school. They don't want to do courses. They don't want to do anything. But we have the, the absolute joy of when we start a new group, we have boys shaking the prison bars outside saying, why can't I be in the group? I want to be in the group. And all the boys in the circle looking at each other thinking, wow, this must be good then, you know. <laughs> That's that's so interesting because I I'd written down if, if, when I was thinking of what questions I wanted to ask you I'd written down because I'd I'd try to put myself in uh, in this situation and I imagine you'd have all sorts of obstacles for these young uh, lads to getting involved um, but you're you're describing that actually they're just they're, they're they can't wait to get involved was is, did that happen immediately or is that just slowly built up over time. No, it didn't happen immediately at all. And it was really hard at first. And um, part of the reason was because the prison staff didn't really didn't really choose the boys very well. We have a we have a fairly sort of rigid idea of what kind of boy we would like to participate. Um, The main um, thing is that he has to have even one percent 
desire to change. You know, there are some boys that they'll they'll say, I don't want to change. I want to continue in crime. I'm not going to I'm not going to stop. You know, so we we ask for boys that are expressing at least some interest. Uh, I have to say, Alexander didn't want to change. And he came and he did. So like, <laughs> but most of them um, do have a little bit of um, an idea of something different for their life. Um, the other thing is, is that we ask for boys that have at least are literate because some of the boys, are, they're like 17, 18 year olds. They can't read or write. And that's really, really difficult because then it's, you know, hard to get them into courses and hard to get them into to work. And the other thing is, is that we ask for um, a boy that um, at least has an auntie or a neighbor or someone that can have him to live with them so that they don't go back to the street because, you know, it's so hard to accompany them afterwards if they're living on the street, although we would love to help the street boys, you know, it, you know, it's just, it's too, it's too complicated to find them in a city of 20 million people. Mm. So those are the sort of three, three categories that we, we ask for. Um, and so at the beginning, the staff, they would sort of just give us boys that weren't really interested or whatever. And so it was harder at the beginning, but now we've built up a momentum. On this this show, we often talk about, um, you know, often the most sustainable community projects are ones that are locally led um, and um, led by people who are from a place. Now, I know you obviously live in Sao Paulo. It's your home, but... Um, you know, we can tell by your voice that you're, you're, you're you didn't grow up there. Um, I just wonder. So you're on some on some level, you're an outsider. Do you see that as a help or a hindrance in the work that you do? Yeah, it's a really good question, Jake. So um, I am the only foreigner on the team. My whole team are um, Brazilians, and. Um, I always worry a bit, you know, I'm 57 and I think, oh, you know, I wonder if I'm relevant, you know, to the boys and stuff like that. But there's just something about, this is what my team say anyway. They say, Callie, there's something about you going and just loving them so much. And it's like, they just feel so, um, so blessed, so cherished that they say to us, why did you come here? I just can't understand why you would come and help us. And, you know, don't you want to stay um, in your house and sit on your sofa instead of coming here in the boiling hot sun or the rain or whatever and and I say to them I say if I can just help one of you my life's worth it I can die tomorrow if I can just help one person to to change their life you know my book starts with the fa- phrase you know it's impossible for for one person to change the world but you can change the world for one person and mm. and that's so so how I feel you know and I always say it's not a job it's a privilege I, I feel like I was born to do what I do and I uh, wouldn't change what I do for anything it's just it is just unbelievable but I have to say the boys are absolutely amazing I think society has this idea that they're just delinquents and they can't even sit on the chair and you know they, they're rude or whatever and they just they're putty in our hands and you know like so respectful like when I I, sometimes I 
lean against the chalkboard and I've got chalk on my back, you know, on my on my T-shirt, and they'll come up and say, oh, Donna Cali. Donna is like a, a, a very polite way of saying, you know, Senora. It's like they wouldn't just call me Cali. Um, and they say, oh, you've got some chalk on your back. Um, ask Donna Liza to, to clean it off. You know, they wouldn't come up and sort of like knock it off for me. You know, mm. they're just so, so respectful. It's unbelievable, really. Um, and, and the when they leave the prison and they're just so, so blessed when we, when we take them food parcels and, you know, they just, yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful to be able to help. How long does your support, your relationship with these boys continue, you know, once they're, <laughs> once they're out of prison? Well, it's supposed to be two years, but the problem is, is that, you know, they become sons. And so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sons don't last for two years so you just you know you become their you become their uh, best woman or whatever at their wedding and at the dedication of their children and um you know they just they're they're with you forever really so the idea is to um accompany them very very closely in the first few months um because that's the critical time if they're going to re-offend you know they've come out of the prison wearing flip-flops no underwear no cell phone no money you know they're not gonna put on a suit and get their cv together what they're gonna do they're gonna go out and commit a crime in order to put food on the plate because many of them come from huge families you know like loads of brothers and sisters they get back to their little shack in the in the slum and you know mum's drunk on the bed and their little brothers and sisters are filthy dirty and crying because there's no food and they'll just go out and, and and rob somebody, you know, to get some, some money. So we help them intensively in the first few months. And then as they begin to find their feet and become more self-sustainable, we have less contact. But, you know, with WhatsApp, it's fantastic because you just like, we always used to say you can phone reverse charges. No, you don't, we don't need to worry about mm. that. Just people WhatsApp us all the time. And we just say, you know, like I remember one time a boy was released from the prison and, in the first week, he just sent me a message saying, Callie, Callie, please help me. I'm going to go and do something. Um, I'm going to do a crime. And, you know, just went straight to his house, took a food parcel, helped him, you know, because you just see it. So it's desperation. So if we can help just in that initial stage, it's really, really important. Um, and then, you know, <laughs> we're going to organise a graduation ceremony for Wallace because he, he couldn't graduate because of the pandemic. So his university didn't do a graduation. So we're, we're going to do that. And, you know, it's just as many, many joyous um, moments with them as well um, that we can take part in, you know, when they're, when their children are born and, and that kind of things. Just, it's just such a, such a joy to to be part of their lives and see their lives turned around i'd I'd written down um this question are you ever scared um it 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 doesn't sound like you are (laughs) (laughs) to be honest with you i feel a lot safer in the prison than i do out on the roads or you know the crazy traffic or that kind of thing and also you know when we go to visit them in in the favelas they're, they're very dangerous places to be, but you just have to be very wise. So you let them know that you're coming. And so they let the people in charge of the favela know, you know, at the entrance. And you drive in with your window down, smiling, with your Bible on the seat next to you, you know, that kind of thing. So 
they automatically know you're not there to cause any trouble or so I, I walk into any or drive into any favela with no fear at all really because um they know me as Cali the missionary or Cali from Association Agia the project you know <laughs> I'd like to look to the future a bit um no you sound incredibly youthful and energetic and it sounds like you've got decades left in you but but it, it is do you see this project continuing um in where you are in sao paulo for for decades to come and also it's, the impact of this sounds phenomenal the, those stats on reoffending and how that's um how that's reduced is is this something that can be rolled out you know globally can it work with adults too yeah just just give me a sense of what the future looks like for for this work yeah, I have a big vision. I, I don't think the Eagle Project is going to end up sort of like, you know, world vision or anything like that. But I have a vision for various things. One, one of the things that we've just been invited to do is to actually work with the prison staff. So to do these psychodrama workshops, but with the, the staff members, there's about 500 prison staff in the state of Sao Paulo. So that's a huge area um, that they want us to work with. And we're going to start a pilot project in February um, because the, the suicide, suicide rate amongst prison staff is so high. And so they really need um, this, kind of, this kind of group. So, of course, if you work with the staff, then you're not going to only help the boys or help the adults in the prison, but you're actually going to help the whole environment because hopefully the staff will become um behave more more restoratively you know less punitively and that's major another thing that is my dream is that we would be part of the strategic plan of the of the training of the the police force in sao paulo or even the whole of brazil because um it's very military it's very punitive so i'm more scared of the police here than i am of the the bandidos you know because they they're just so aggressive and if we could help them with their anger with their way of dealing with people that would just be so awesome too so yeah that that's sort of part of what what we'd love to do obviously i would love this work to spread through brazil throughout the world i think um there are some things happening around the world with with psychodrama in prisons but i think there could be so much more so yeah i i'm excited about the future um we we actually have in the in the prison where we work at the moment there are actually 17 youth prison units with about 60 boys in each unit and i met the director of these 17 units at the gate the other day and she said to me i would just love to have this project in all these 17 units Mm. at the moment we're in three so that would be just unbelievable it'd be a dream to be able to work you know in many more prison units a boy in the youth prison costs the government about two thousand pounds a month Mm. um our project to work with 10 boys for 10 sessions and accompany four of those boys afterwards costs £3,000. Mm. <laughs> so if you think about it, our project is not expensive. Mm. It is, is a, you know, it's, 
it's a really, really cheap way of transforming lives compared to what the government is doing, which, you know, obviously the, the staff do their best or whatever. But, you know, I believe that we've got something that really, really works. And the prison staff really believe it works. They see they see a huge transformation in the boys just in the in the whole, you know, as the sessions roll out, they see the boys behaving differently in the youth prison um, before they even leave, you know. So with right funding and the right um, the right help, we could actually grow a lot. And, and that's my hope and my prayer. Well, there's a lot to digest there. Um, <laughs> just before we go, so people listening to this, Eve, uh been inspired by what they've heard and like the sound of having something similar where they live what would you say to them where's the best place to start yeah um i mean if you want to work with groups i think drama psychodrama theater is a, is a fantastic way to to reach people young people i think the arts you know in general music workshops or or dance or there's so many different ways that we can we can reach out and uh i would say to people get training i i mean i i was interested in psychodrama and so i did a an initial course here in sao paulo which was just uh once a week for eight weeks so it's just eight sessions but then i did a postgrad in in portuguese oh i nearly died um <laughs> i had to write a thesis twenty-one thousand words I nearly, I, I thought my brain was going to scramble, but I did it. Um, it was two two years training in psychodrama to be able to to really, you know, lead the workshops well and stuff. So I would say to people, you know, wherever wherever you are, whatever country you are, there's so much stuff online nowadays that is available. Even psychodrama courses online, <laughs> I've, I've already um been a, a leader in one of those and it isn't as good obviously but it is possible to do psychodrama online um so i'd say to people yeah look look for training look for courses you know work out how you can best help the people in your community and yeah and if anybody wants to talk to me um if you can make available my my email or whatever jake mm. i'm more than happy to to help people if they're interested brilliant yeah we can do that we can do that great uh Callie we'll leave it there that's fantastic thank you so much thank you Jake that was Callie Magalhães who runs the Eagle Project in Brazil and you can learn more about the project by buying her book Dancing with Thieves which you can find online and if you search for the Eagle Project on Facebook then you can find out more about Callie's work and find her contact details that's almost it for this episode. Before we go, don't forget you can catch up on previous episodes of How to Build Community on our SoundCloud page or in your podcast player. Just search How to Build Community. You can find out more about Tear Fund's Footsteps magazine at the website learn.tearfund.org. You can help support this show by making a small monthly donation on our Patreon page by going to Patreon dot com forward slash aruka network and aruka is spelled a-r-u-k-a-h you can learn more about aruka on the website aruka network.org and finally if you have some feedback on this show or suggestions for future interviewees then you can reach me via email jake at aruka network.org that's it for this episode until next time bye for now <laughs>